The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey folks, Ben Wittes here, announcing a new feature on the Lawfare podcast. We have been going five times a week for about a year now. We've decided that so many of you folks are listening to back episodes, including way back episodes of the Lawfare podcast, that we thought we would use weekend time to dip into our archive and play back episodes that are suddenly of contemporary relevance. We're calling this the Lawfare Archive. We hope you enjoy it. This is the Lawfare Archive. Hello, this is Lawfare intern Christiana Wayne with a podcast in the Lawfare Archives for June 20th, 2021. Last week, a United Nations court denied the final appeal of Bosnian Serb General Ratko Mladic, confirming that he will serve out a life sentence for genocide and crimes against humanity during the Bosnian War. He was the last outstanding case from the International Criminal Tribunal for Yugoslavia, and signals the end of the United Nations' historic efforts to hold the perpetrators of atrocities during that conflict accountable for their actions. For today's episode from the archives, I chose to go back to February 2020 for a discussion about another convicted Bosnian war criminal, Radovan Karadzic, with scholar Jessica Stern, who interviewed Karadzic at length and wrote about him in her book, My War Criminal. She talks to Benjamin Wittes about nationalism, genocide, and writing about the world's most evil men. I'm Christiana, and this is the Lawfare Podcast. I'm Benjamin Wittes, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, bonus edition, February 19th, 2020. Jessica Stern is an old friend. We go back a long ways. She served on the National Security Council during the Clinton administration, And we got to know each other because we had a similar interest in biological weapons back before they were cool. Jessica has a remarkable skill. She interviews really bad people and she writes about them in really interesting ways. And she spent a lot of time with Bosnian Serb war criminal Radovan Karadzic, who is serving a life sentence for genocide in connection with the Bosnian conflict in the 1990s at the Yugoslav War Crimes Tribunal in The Hague. Their conversations led to the publication of the book My War Criminal, Personal Encounters with an Architect of Genocide, which triggered a remarkable outpouring of rage at Jessica Stern. She joined me remotely the other day to discuss the book, the controversy, and her general approach to talking to evil men. It's the Lawfare Podcast, episode 510, 
Jessica Stern on Radovan Karadzic. I want to start with the controversy over the book, because I suspect for a lot of listeners, when they hear that you're uh, here and you're talking about this book, there there may be some pre-existing understandings about what the book is, depending on uh, who the listener might be. So first of all, tell us what you set out to do and what happened, I guess, even before the book was published. Sure. So what I set out to do was try to understand a a genocide heir, a person who I knew and I thought everybody knew was indicted for genocide and ultimately convicted for genocide for killing approximately 8,000 men and boys at Srebrenica and many other war crimes. And I wanted to understand him. This is not a book about the causes of genocide. It's a book about how one person came to be a genocide heir. And who is that person? Well, his name is Radovan Karadzic, and he was the president of the Serb entity within Bosnia. And he oversaw horrific war crimes. And you have no doubt about the truth of the allegations that he was in fact responsible for those war crimes and for the genocide perpetrated by uh, Serbs against Bosnian Muslims during the Bosnian conflict. Is that right? I have no doubt. I did not investigate that question because the Yugoslav tribunal had millions of dollars to spend to investigate the question. So that was not, I didn't see that as my task. My task was to try to understand how he became the person that the Yugoslav tr- tribunal was completely convinced was guilty of these crimes. So my feeling was I couldn't possibly compete with them. There was no reason for me to try to to determine his guilt or innocence. I of course, was prepared to accept what the court determined because they investigated this issue for many years with many, many investigators. And you have no reason to doubt the integrity of their guilty verdict? I have no reason to doubt the integrity of their verdict. Absolutely not. So you you spend a number of years visiting and interviewing Radovan Karadzic, and then you write your book, and what happens? Well, the New York Times published an excerpt of the book, and I will admit that the excerpt probably was not well chosen. And before anybody knew what the book was actually about, there was a a Twitter storm accusing me of being a denier of genocide and many other alleged crimes, even including that I'm a white nationalist, that I played a role in the election of President Trump. That one I thought was very bizarre. 
and various other claims that I, I won't even go into. And I, I mean, Twitter storm is a bit of an understatement here, I think. Uh, there, there were sufficient concerns based on the onslaught that you canceled a bunch of public appearances. I mean, how bad was it? Well, there, it started the night of when the, the Times piece appeared online, and I was really confused. I couldn't understand how anybody could imagine that I was denying the genocide, given that the words architect of genocide are even in the title of the book. And I ended up talking privately to one of the people who was part of this Twitter mob, uh, and I, I told them I, I was really having trouble understanding. Then the next morning, I, for a while there, I was getting about 10 likes a minute. And I was looking at what people were saying. And I, I suddenly understood that I had re-traumatized, severely traumatized people. And I felt absolutely terrible. My publisher also was getting slammed, and my publisher actually canceled everything. They pub they canceled the book tour, they canceled any radio interviews, they canceled Terry Gross. Well, and as a matter of fact, we canceled you. We canceled a, a podcast with with Lawfare. Everything, which, but by, by the way, is is a much bigger deal than canceling Terry Gross. <laughs> Well, for me, it is because we're friends. <laughs> so, yes. <laughs> but um, that was the decision of my publisher. And, you know, it also happened in the context of, of American Dirt. So there were, I think my, my editor told me that he had had lunch with a couple of other publishers who were dealing with similar issues. So I think everybody was feeling a little bit alarmed about what was happening we at first we thought we would just have security at events but the storm got bad enough that my publisher really felt this is a bad idea we we just need to cancel completely uh and perhaps we will do it at a later date but that's what everybody agreed was the right thing to do and was the nature of the twitter storm entirely from one side or was it a sort of cacophony uh how would you characterize the the anger directed your way most of the anger directed my way was bosniaks but there were also some i should say seemed to be coming from bosniaks bosnian muslims but there also seemed to be some anger coming from Bosnian Serbs. There's a theory that the Bosnian Serb leadership takes advantage of Bosnian Muslims to change the world when they want to change something. They promote Twitter storms by Bosnian Muslims. Uh, this is a theory that was shared by somebody with at the Yugoslav tribunal and and actually somebody in the state department thought the same thing. I don't know whether that's true. Um it did seem to be a fairly organized attack. 
I don't know who was actually organizing it, which side. And all of that was from before the book came out, right? I mean, this was yes. all based on an excerpt that appeared in The Times, not based on the actual book. Is that right? That's right. It was before the book came out and before it seems that anybody had paid attention to the title of the book. All right. So let's talk about the book and then let's talk about some of the criticisms that have arisen in in some of the reviews of the actual book rather than the sort of imagined evil Jessica Stern uh, storm. I guess it given given the subject and the and the criticism, let's start with some of your earlier work, because I think a lot of people who were really mad at you about this book probably don't know about your prior career. So uh, or at least maybe don't know enough about it. So how did you come to be interviewing Radovan Karadzic? I have spent nearly three decades studying evil men. Uh, that's uh, what I've always done. I started interviewing terrorists, I think about 25 years ago, more than 20 years ago. And I've done that across ideologies, across religions. And I, over time, realized, well, this is not really very safe. I better focus on incarcerated evil men. And so that's what I've been doing for the last 18 years ago, 18 years or so. Actually, yeah, around 18 years. So let, let, can we just tick through some of the peoples and categories of people that you have done this with? When you and I first met, I believe in the late 90s, uh, we met because there was this gentleman whose name I'm not remembering who was uh, arrested for uh, ordering a whole lot of anthrax through the mail, uh, mail ordering some anthrax. And it turns out that you had interviewed him not that long before. Um, am I remembering that correctly? I think it was uh, Larry Wayne Harris who had ordered some Yersinia pestis. Ah, sorry. Uh, Wrong pathogen. Yes. <laughs> I, I, I believe that that was who we discussed. Yes, right. And yes, so I I started out doing this work focused mainly on white supremacists and actually those who got interested in biological and chemical weapons. Um, and that tended to be white supremacists. And Larry Wayne Harris, I talked to on the phone, and William Pierce, who was the head of the National Alliance, a, a very well-known, important, significant neo-Nazi, uh, who wrote the Turner Diaries, I also interviewed on the phone. I wanted to go see him. I tried to persuade a psychiatrist to go with me, and he kept coming up with excuses about why it wasn't convenient uh, to go with me. But over time, I started spending time with neo-Nazis in the flesh. And those were my first terrorists. And then I spent quite a bit of time. But, but before, before you move on to, sure. to, to what I think is going to be Pakistan, 
Yes. Uh, given the recent uh, confusion about who you are, you spent a lot of time with neo-Nazis. Are you a neo-Nazi? No, I'm not. Okay, I just checking. I am not. So then, so th- th- then you 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 got bored of neo Nazis and you started hanging out with uh, jihadis, right? So somebody told me I, I or just a, a, a sort of casual conversation with one of my neighbors. I ended up going to Pakistan because she told me that there were members of Bin Laden's uh, International Islamic Front. Um, that one could talk to in Pakistan. I mean, I looking back at this, it, it's pretty crazy that I did this. But at that time, before 9-11, the Pakistani jihadis were actually very happy to talk to me. I think they felt a little bit almost neglected that they were, nobody had ever really spent time studying them. And um, they, I mean, that was the feeling I got. They, they really were very, very happy to talk to me. And there were di- uh, quite a few different groups that I ended up spending time with. And as a result of this research, I did get accused of being a terrorist sympathizer, both a neo-Nazi and jihadi sympathizer. Um, and in fact, I did so much of this work that I sometimes had to have security clearances. One time when I was invested for a security clearance, I was asked about my, you know, my neo-Nazi sympathies, <laughs> which, you know, just seemed completely beyond the pale to me because I'm Jewish. The idea that I would be sympathetic to neo-Nazis, that, that was just seemed crazy to me. But I also got accused of being a... a jihadi sympathizer. Um, I've also looked at Jewish terrorists. So I've been accused of being anti-Semitic. So this is not the first time that I've been accused of being a sympathizer with the person or persons that I have uh, investigated. When you talk, this is, I think, an important procedural point. When you talk to neo-Nazis, when you talk to uh, jihadis when you talk to Jewish terrorists. One of the things that's striking about your interviews with these people is you sort of try to get in their heads and you're you're not sitting there arguing with them. You're kind of listening and absorbing. Uh, what's the I mean, the word empathic comes to mind, um, which I think some people kind of confuse with sympathy. How would you describe your general approach to talking to really bad people? I I would describe it as empathic listening, which is a research approach that involves uh, not sympathy, um, the the way, but but a way of following the logic and trying to understand the perspective of the interviewee. Um, and while I'm with the interviewee, I, I have found a way really to suspend judgment. And I actually, for the most part, can pull this off. It doesn't always work. I was recently filmed 
interviewing a neo-Nazi. And for some reason, I wasn't able to pull it off. I got absolutely furious with him. And the filmmaker, well, I'd never done this on film before. So I I think part of it was that the neo-Nazi w- was seeing, you know, this as an opportunity to, to frankly, recruit. And I got furious with him. But for the most part, I have been able to suspend judgment when I'm in the interview. Once the interview is over, I come back to myself and I often will force myself to type up my notes if I'm not able to bring a computer uh, into the interview, which happens in prisons. In prison, I have to write by hand. And then I often have trouble returning to my notes because I feel this disgust and horror about what happened in the interview and often, frankly, disgust for the perpetrator. And sometimes I have to leave my typed up notes for quite a while before I can bear to go back to them. Before coming to Karatich, I want to ask you about one other research project that you did, which strikes me is a little bit different from these because the subject was dead. But it is, in other ways, an extreme example, which was your search in the book Denial for everything you could find out about the serial rapist who broke into your house in Cambridge when you were a teenager and raped you. I was amazed when I read that book, which I... I guess I should say I read in draft along the way at how much you tried to take that approach even in investigating somebody who had perpetrated a you know astonishing act of violence against you is it fair to say well you couldn't interview him obviously but there was a when you say you 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 adopt this approach in interviews you sort of seem to do it in research in general, even in the most intensely personal situations. Yes. Um, the the rape actually occurred in Concord, Massachusetts, but there were many rapes in Cambridge. This was an unsolved crime. And I went uh, to back to the police and they realized in their files that there were descriptions of obviously the same perpetrator who the same description of exactly the same gun the same modus operandi Uh, there were many rapes near harvard well radcliffe near harvard university radcliffe the girls part of of harvard Uh, harvard at the time covered it up thinking, uh, I think the authorities at Harvard thinking that this was important to protect the privacy of the victims, the Cambridge police covering it up. There had been a remarkably similar rape at Concord Academy. Many of the victims after the book came out have contacted me, um, but the, the police in Concord reopened the case felt very strongly that they had figured out who the perpetrator was. He was dead. But I did go meet people, his relatives. I met 
his girlfriend and I absolutely used empathetic listening to talk to them, even though I was completely horrified about the role they hadn't played in ensuring that this man stopped his predation of young girls. All right, all of which brings us to the present project. How did you get to know Radovan Karadzic and what were you attempting to learn about him in in these conversations? So I, it took a long time for me to persuade the tribunal to allow me to interview Radovan Karadzic uh, in prison. But in fact, it took nearly four years for, for me to, to do this. You know, there's a, a, a very large literature that looks at the utility of mass atrocities in wartime. But I really wanted to deploy the technique that I have used throughout my career to try to understand how Radovan Karadzic became the person, the, the, the genocide heir that, that he was. I wanted to understand what made it possible for him to persuade ordinary people to kill their neighbors. What is the ecosystem that creates and nurtures this kind of leader to become a, a genocidal leader? Was there anything in his history or anything about his personality that, or, or even exposure to historical trauma that could help us understand how he became this evil leader, how he, he became someone who would, would be, be a genocide heir. And it turned out that he was almost like a divided person, that he all along was a healer who had within him the potential to become a genocide heir. Um, he was a psychiatrist. And according to his boss um, at the clinic where he worked, he was not a very able psychiatrist, but he was a psychiatrist who saw patients. He thought he was an excellent psychiatrist, he says. He, yes, absolutely. He thought he was one of the best psychiatrists. He also saw himself as one of the best poets. He was also a poet. He did win prizes in communist Yugoslavia, but most of the poets who are taken seriously today did not see him as an excellent poet at all. Much less the third best in Serbian history. Right, right. He, he really, he also predicted that he would get a Nobel Prize for his literary work. So he had a, a, a quite grandiose conception of himself. One of the things that I learned as a result of this empathetic listening project is that he was not just a political leader who turned to nationalism because it was expedient when Yugoslavia broke up. When Bosnia broke away, all, 
the leaders, the, the first election, all the leaders were nationalist. But this was not a man who became a nationalist because nationalism was in fashion. What I discovered is that he really had nationalism bred in the bone. And previous accounts assume that he was much more like Milosevic, that he he took on the mantle of nationalism because that would get him elected. That was absolutely not the case. I mean, he told me in the first five years of his life, his father had been imprisoned. His mother was was intoning these nationalist, Serb nationalist, anti-Muslim, anti-Turk epic poems from his earliest childhood. And he sort of reverted to that ideology when Yugoslavia broke apart. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, Lawfare listeners, Ben Wittes here. want to tell you about the first time I got a report from the folks at Delete Me. It was shortly after I started using the service back in 2022, and they sent me their first privacy report. I have since gotten eight others, and it contains some shocking information. They had removed my data from 56 separate data brokers, that this had included 133 separate records, including 621 individual pieces of personal information. Uh, The data broker with the most information about me was a company I'd never heard of called People by Name. And here's the thing. Since then, every couple of months, I've gotten another privacy report from Delete Me, and it always contains more information that they have removed from the data brokers about me. In the second report, they informed me they had removed my stuff from 41 data brokers and that the one with the most information about me was called HLEC. I have no idea what HLEC is. So the other day, I got my latest report and it includes 15 more data brokers with my personal information, 113 pieces of personally identifiable information, Big culprit this time is something called My Life. Well, I want to tell you that they don't have My Life anymore. And that is why I recommend Delete Me. As this little anecdote shows, there's a lot of my data out there. And these companies keep acquiring it and making it available to anybody who can pay. And I have uh, slept a little bit more easily ever since I 
found a, a solution to this problem. And I want to stress, as I do every time, that I started using this before Delete Me started advertising with Lawfare. Delete Me finds and removes any personal information you don't want online, and it makes sure it stays off. And that's the point of this little story that, you know, they keep coming back. You can get it removed once, but they'll put it back. And then Delete Me comes and takes it off again. It's a subscription service that removes your personal information from the largest people search databases on the web and in the process helps prevent potential identity theft, doxing, and phishing scams. Delete Me sends you regular personalized privacy reports, just like the ones I've been describing, showing what info they found where, where they found it, and what they removed. And critically, as this story reflects, it isn't just a one-time service. It's always working for you, constantly monitoring and removing the personal information you don't want on the internet. It does all the hard work of wiping you and your family's personal information off the web. Data brokers hate Delete Me, which is why I like it. Your profile is no longer theirs to sell. So take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me, now at a special discount for our listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and use promo code lawfare20 at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and enter code LAWFARE20 at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash LAWFARE20, code LAWFARE20. And yet you do describe that he has this chameleon-like quality politically. He is a Titoist apologist when he's doing a, a fellowship in New York. Uh, he's an anti-communist dissident in... I, I guess in in protests in his youth, in, in, in his yeah, in youth. His medical, when he was in medical school, um, and then he kind of emerges as uh, the '80s turn into the '90s as a uh, Serb nationalist, and so I I was actually left a little bit confused as to you know you do conclude that the nationalism is bred into his bones, but he also does have this sort of opportunism. And how do you understand the interaction of the opportunism and the and the the sort of deep seated? He's the great grandson of of a storied Serbian folklorist. Um, he's a uh, as you describe grows up uh, with these sung epic poems. How do you describe the interaction between the two? He absolutely was a chameleon. That's a, a word that was used by a couple of, of people who, who knew him well. He, in, in his earliest youth, was arguing with his father, his father extremely anti-partisan, anti-communist. And so he took the position of that he was a communist in his youth. Then when, it, when he was in medical school, he were, became an anti-communist activist. Some of his friends insist that even as he was an anti-communist activist, he a dissident, he was in fact spying 
on youth for the communist authorities. I don't know whether that's true or not. Then I discovered when he was on an IREX grant in New York in the early 70s, I met the man from whom he rented a room, and that man told me uh, that at that time, he was singing these banal pro-Tito songs. He also joined the Green Party, but I believe that the nationalism is genuine. And I think even though he initially utterly rejected a nationalist position, I think that when he took on the, that, the mantle of nationalism, that is a reflection of how he was raised from his earliest youth. His father was a Serb nationalist Chetnik. His father, he, he was raised to, to think of his father as a hero. He was raised to think of his ancestors who were Serb nationalists as heroes. And I think that became who he was. But he also was able to pretend to be a energy worker when he was in hiding from NATO for over 12 years. He was able to become a completely different person. A faith healer. A faith healer, yes. And he actually made money from this practice. And he lost about 70 pounds. He completely changed the way he spoke, both his accent and even the timbre of his voice. It's, I've never heard of anybody able to do this. And so, yes, he absolutely, a, a, an extraordinary, bizarre, chameleon-like quality. But I think the nationalism is who he actually is. One of the things you describe toward the end of the book is uh, that the transformation is so dramatic that he could go to a Serb nationalist bar in every night in Belgrade in, in this new persona and sit in front of a picture of himself as Radovan Karadzic and nobody would recognize him. Yes, that's what the people in the bar said. You know, of course, I can't be 100% sure that they really didn't recognize him because it was a Serb nationalist bar. But that is what everyone said. They didn't know who he was. And he, you know, he, he had this very long hair that he tied up with a black bow on top of his head. He had a very long beard. He presented himself as this mystical person who was at one point saving the lives of bees that were about to be killed. He, people really bought bought that notion of, of, of who he, he was. Many people. Before we get to some of the criticisms the book has gotten, this is kind of latent in what we've discussed, but I want to bring it out. What is your basic conclusion about him? That he's, you know, he's a 
sort of grandiose, narcissistic individual with a uh, a deep, latent nationalism underneath a chameleon-like political uh, quality over time. He is a, a working psychiatrist and uh, poet and eccentric. How does a person like that go from that to supervising Srebrenica? One thing I discovered, and this was pretty shocking, is that his father murdered his own cousin. His father had fallen in love with his cousin and got so enraged when his cousin wouldn't marry him on the father's timetable that he murdered the person he was in love with and then went into hiding. But there was a letter that was found where the father had said, if you won't marry me on the timetable, I demand I'm going to kill you and kill myself. And the father did not kill himself, but did kill his own cousin. This is an extremely <laughs> horrific murderer who was allowed out of prison when World War II started in Yugoslavia. That was very common. And I present this information as well as a description of how good Karadzic is at manipulating me as a way to present data. I don't want to diagnose him. I'm not an MD and I didn't think it was right. I actually tried to get a colleague who specializes in psychopathy to allow me to quote him after he read my book saying that he was certainly, you know, if, if we think of psychopathy as being on a spectrum, that he certainly was on the spectrum. Who is he? He's, I would say, I think it's fair to call him a, a malignant narcissist. He's absolutely a mesmerist. He was every second that I was talking to him, trying to manipulate me. And so I show the reader how powerful his capacity to manipulate is. But that doesn't mean that I didn't see who he was. Um, I, I want the reader to understand I am not a Serb nationalist. And yet he really worked on me. It, it I think, really helps to explain how the, the role he played in really turning neighbor against neighbor in, in Bosnia, Serbs, Muslims and Croats had lived together in peace for decades. And it's been a big puzzle. How is it that they turned against each other? Well, there was a, a media campaign and Karadzic was, was part of the reason. I mean, he, he said to me, I can control a mob with my eyes. He, he's showing off his mesmerizing capacity. Another thing I learned is that he's completely devoid of shame. So that would be a quality 
that is usually associated with psychopathy. Um, his grandiosity, his manipulative nature. I, I didn't want to use that term, but I was really hoping that readers would understand from all the adjectives and, and, and all the actions, watching what Karadzic tried to do with me and his rage at me when he heard that I described him as manipulative, that they would be able to pull together that he really was a malignant narcissist, devoid of shame, a habitual liar, a demagogue, and a mass, a, a, a genocide heir. And, and I, I have to say, completely and utterly charming. Yeah, you. I mean, one one thing that comes through the book is that you kind of like him, and you're angry at yourself about it. If you sit with him, this this man is remarkably charming. So one of the things that he's incredibly good at is somehow intuiting what he might have in common with the person he's talking to. I mean, I was watching him do this. I couldn't believe that this Serb nationalist leader was able to find things that we had in common. So one of the things he kept doing, I think in the beginning, assuming that if I'm as a Jew, that I would like it, that he found ways in which he was pro-Jewish. I didn't like it. I, I thought it was completely transparent that he was trying to, to claim that that he was pro-Jewish and even trying to, to make me think that the Serbs were the Jews of Bosnia. Actually, a lot of Bosniaks see, and in fact, I suppose they, they, they have a much stronger claim to being the Jews of Bosnia. Yeah, the but, Jews of Bosnia, though, have the strongest claim to it. Well, yes, you're right. The Jews have the strongest <laughs> claim of being the Jews of Bosnia. But the Serbs are the last ones to have, you know, be able to make that claim. I mean, there is this kind of victimization Olympics, and he really wanted to describe the Serbs as the biggest victims. And that was a very important part of his arguments with me. But for some, the thing that shocks me is that I'm showing how he makes these arguments, trying to manipulate me. And I, frankly, trying to, you could see how he was manipulating Serbs to come to this perspective. And yet some people didn't understand that I was doing that in order to show how fantastically manipulative he was. So let's, let's talk about that. Cause the first, I think the first major criticism of the book is that you got sucked into his worldview more than you meant to or or even more more than you should have and the more sophisticated versions of this are like she knows it's happening she's even describing that it's happening and yet he influenced her and she sort of looks at a bunch of things from his point of view. To what extent does the criticism have any merit? Well, one thing I did is that I did take his story as something I needed to investigate. So I wasn't writing a book about 
uh, the victims. And I wasn't writing a book about Bosniaks. I was writing a book about him. And so I follow his story uh, and I investigate his claims. So one of his claims is that the Muslims were going to create a Sharia-based state in the middle of Europe. I investigate that claim. It was absurd, absolutely absurd. But I did discover that the, the leader of the Muslims was an Islamist. In fact, he called himself an Islamist. And that is, I think, surprising. It was, it was quite surprising to me. He was not a jihadi by any means, but he was an Islamist. And the jihadis did play a role in the defense of the Bosniaks in the war. Why did Izebegovic turn to jihadis? Why did he turn to Iran? Why did he, he turn to Saudi Arabia? There were sanctions on the Bosniaks and they needed weapons. And the United States knew uh, that weapons were coming in, in violation of an arms embargo and look the other way. That's how important the United States realized it was that the Bosniaks get these weapons. The, the Bosniaks desperately wanted the West and in particular the United States to intervene. And we didn't until very late in the war. NATO finally did uh, intervene after Srebrenica. But I do use Karadzic's story as something that I wanted to investigate. So I'm, I'm not, I, I'm investigating one person and his narrative. And that's the arc of the book. And as I, I first tell the story from his perspective by the end of the book, it's very clear I'm comparing him with the Nazis in the prison at Nuremberg. But I think very few people have read the whole book because this Twitter storm came out before the book was right. published. Well, I have read the whole book. And so let me ask you about a few of the other sort of specific areas where you do seem to have raised the hairs on the backs of some people's necks. Uh, there's a passage in the book where you similarly entertain or or examine his claim that a lot of the attacks, the sniper attacks um, and even a mortar attack on uh, Bosnian Muslim civilians in Sarajevo during the siege of Sarajevo were actually inflicted by Bosnian Muslim forces in an effort to create a sympathy for the Bosnian Muslim cause abroad. And you conclude that the overwhelming majority of them were uh, Serbian atrocities, as, as, as the conventional wisdom has it, but that there were incidents of uh, basically self imposed uh, war crimes for the purpose that he describes. And you even entertain the possibility that the 
this particularly famous uh, mortar attack on a bread line in Sarajevo that was, I don't know, killed 23, 24 people or something, that this massacre may have been sort of self-inflicted. And this seems to have upset a lot of people. And I'm just, I'm interested for your sense of, you know, did you give too much space to his self-exculpation self you know exculpatory theories here or is this simply an area where you acknowledge that hey there are a few of these cases um but that doesn't actually change the larger arc of the story so first of all i report what the yugoslav tribunal concluded and the yugoslav tribunal concluded that there may have been cases where Bosniaks fired on Bosniaks in order to attract Western intervention, to understandably try to get the West to to rescue them from this horrific situation. I do report that initially there was some confusion about what happened in that massacre. But I don't say that the Bosniaks were in any way responsible for that massacre. Not at all. I say that the Yugoslav tribunal concluded that there may have been some instances, but they were a very, very small number in comparison with the horrific atrocities carried out by the Serbs against the Bosniaks. Another area where I guess it was a a long article in The Intercept kind of objecting to the book, you know, one of the contentions in, in that article is that you kind of relieve Karadzic of direct responsibility by kind of treating him as a sort of relatively distant overlord who supervised the atrocities but didn't individually direct any of them. Are you giving him a little too much distance here? Again, I rely 100% on what the tribunal concluded. And the tribunal concluded that Midway through Srebrenica, Karadzic knew everything that was going on. The tribunal was not able to prove that Karadzic planned the genocide, but they concluded that he knew about it and didn't stop it. Uh, They concluded that uh, some of the edicts issued in advance that one particular very important one, that he actually had not written it, but he signed it and he was president. So he was 100% responsible. There's no doubt in my mind that he was responsible and that he knew. Why? Again, because I'm relying on the tribunal, uh, which had many, you know, I'm just one person. I didn't try myself to investigate his culpability. I felt it was important to just rely on the the tribunal's findings. And to assess his story against the record. 
Well, I wouldn't say I assessed his story yet. Yeah, well, yes, maybe that's a maybe that is a good way of putting it. Yes. So he his story was actually I found there were intercepts that made him look like he wanted to take credit for Srebrenica. In fact, they, he did take credit for the massacre at Srebrenica. He took credit for that massacre until he realized that it could result in his conviction for, for genocide. And then he walked back his taking credit. But those intercepts were not even used. Some of the intercepts that, that I got access to were not used by the tribunal because he was taking credit after the attack. Actually, I'm not 100% sure why all those intercepts weren't used. I think they didn't find them credible that, that Karadzic wanted to say that he was responsible 100% for planning that genocide, overseeing it from the very beginning. Your characterization of it is kind of he he wanted credit for it within the context of Serbian politics and deniability from it with with uh, in the context of everything else. Right. He he wanted to get credit with the Serb nationalists that he was the hero that carried out this horrible atrocity, not Mladic, uh, who was the military commander. But he also wanted not to be uh convicted of genocide. So he wanted these two contradictory things. Uh, one to be to be lionized as the horrible savior of, of the Ser Serbs who was prepared and in fact did plan a genocide. And yet in, in the eyes of the international community, and in fact, what he said to me was, I didn't know that the Muslims were being murdered. He was clearly lying both to the international community and to me. It's very, very clear based on intercepts. One last area of criticism that you've gotten is that you give too much credit to his broader political narrative, that the uh, Serbian community in Bosnia was genuinely under threat. Uh, and you describe a kind of, I would say, sort of a, an ethnic conflict prisoner's dilemma, right? You got to attack first before the other side does. And that you accept to some degree that the perception of threat was, was real. And uh, a lot of people seem to find that objectionable. Bosnia, they say, was going to be or was a multi-ethnic state. There was actually nothing to fear for the Serb community but for the ginning up of these fears by people like Radovan Karatic. And so I guess my question is, first of all, did you buy the fear paradigm too much? And secondly, wasn't the fear self-stoked by Karadzic and people like him. The fear was self-stoked. And, and I, one of the points I'm trying to make about the fear associated with losing demographic status, the status as the most 
numerous group is that this is what's happening to some whites in the United States today. This, the fear of, in the case of whites, of America becoming a minority majority nation that whites will no longer be in the majority as of 2013, more non-white babies were born than whites. There, there is a, a fear among white nationalists in the United States. Do I think that there's a reason to fear? Is this a, a rational fear? No. And Serbs had been the, the most numerous group in the former Yugoslavia when Bosnia broke away, suddenly Serbs were outnumbered by Muslims. And I try to tell the story even in the very beginning of the book that Karadzic insisted that when you're afraid of a snake, what matters is whether the snake is real. And he kept saying, the snake was real. And what I say is that he conjured a boa constrictor out of a snake that couldn't kill people. And so it's true that Serbs were going to lose their status as the dominant, numerically dominant ethnic group. But that doesn't mean that they were actually under threat any more than it, that the same argument would apply to whites in the United States. One more question. What has the response from Radovan Karadzic been? He wrote me a letter telling me how deeply disappointed he was in me, that he had assumed that I would be a very serious researcher and that he discovered that I was a failure as a, as a, as a researcher. He, he said that he thought that I would be like Rebecca West, that I would take this, the problem of understanding uh, what happened to the Serbs very seriously. And, and he was deeply disappointed that I failed in that, despite his faith or his wishes. And what prompted that letter? Was it, uh, did he see the manuscript or did he see, what, what, what did he see that caused him to write that to you? I am actually not sure what he saw. This was before the manuscript came out, but I, I think it's that I described him basically as a malignant narcissist. I don't remember exactly what words I used. And I described how manipulative he was uh, in an alumni magazine for Boston University, where I teach now. I, I think that might have been what he saw. He's, he seems to have had a search ongoing um, on me and or somebody was searching for him. So he, he sent me a letter telling me how disappointed he was. And how did you feel about that? Not surprised. I mean, I knew it was just a matter of time. Um, one of the the people who knew him quite well and who had talked to me about him wouldn't allow me to use his name because she was so afraid of being targeted by 
Serb nationalists or his followers or even white nationalists. One of the stories that I tell is that Radovan Karadzic has become a hero to white nationalists around the world. And she was afraid of both Serb nationalists and white nationalists. I wasn't surprised that he was so angry at me. I, I expected that would happen. The book is My War Criminal, Personal Encounters with an Architect of Genocide. The author is Jessica Stern. Jesse, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me, Ben. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. Our music is, as it always is, performed by Sophia Yan. We usually do that point last. We're doing it first this time. But we're not forgetting that you should be tweeting about the Lawfare Podcast, sharing the Lawfare Podcast on Instagram. We're underperforming on Instagram, people. You should be buying Lawfare swag at thelawfarestore.com. And you should be thanking our audio engineer this week, who is Michaela Fogel, as well as Jen Patya Howell, who produces and edits the Lawfare podcast. And as always, thanks for listening.